ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> And welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And I'm your co-host, Amy Goodman, young adult breast cancer fighter, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer? Under 40? Stuck, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. On tonight's show, parenting while facing the challenge of cancer presents a litany of major issues and concerns, not the least of which is how to talk to your children. Join us tonight as we welcome parent and survivors Jen Singer, Adam Johnson, and Francesca Geisman to discuss this incredibly important issue. Survivor Spotlight on Megan Hildebrandt. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using the hashtag SBRadio. All right, good evening. Hello. Happy Hello. Monday. Happy Monday. And again, yo, what's going on? Annie, loving you back in the uh, studio here. Thanks. How you it's doing? Fun back. I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Feeling good. I had a really busy weekend. I saw Billy Joel. I saw that on Instagram. It's good. The reason why Bill is... At the garden? I did. With Sephora. Yes. Yes, our friend Sephora Razor. Yes. So uh, it was a little bit significant because I had tickets to go to his first show in January at the garden, and I was told by my doctors I was not allowed to go because I had just had brain surgery. I was doing brain radiation. I was like, well, I'll be fine. And they're like you're not going. Uh-huh. And I had floor seats and I was so excited to go and I had to sell them. Um, so it was so really... this was redemptive. It was like awesome because in January when I was super sick with like brain tumors and not, you know, knowing what the hell was about to happen to me, um, I didn't know if I was going to see the summer at the time because you read, you, you know, you Dr. Google brain tumor, metastatic brain tumors and you're like, oh boy, 
I'm going to be dead soon, but I'm not. I'm actually a lot better. And I had a great time and I danced in my seat and we sang very loudly and it was awesome. Great time. Who opened for him? Gavin DeGraw. Yeah, that's who opened for him when I was there. I saw like I was unimpressed. I saw a couple of songs. I mean, security takes forever to get in. So by the time we like got up security, go up the escalator. I mean, we were like 100 levels. We supposed to go up like 80 escalators. Right. So then by the time we did all that, got our seats, he had like two songs left, and Billy Joel comes out. They changed that stage over fast, and he was out, and he sang for like two hours. No, it was great. It was I, I, oh, unbelievable. Yeah. He took like one break. He took a break for like chloroseptic. Yeah. He, well, he <laughs> was that musician secret spray. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, he made a joke about it. Yeah. And then he's like, I haven't made an album in over 20 years, but I'll take your money. <laughs> um, but it was, all, I mean, as a girl growing, who grew up on Long Island, yeah, I'm at like three towns over from where he grew up, it was amazing. Yeah, good stuff. Well, we want to wish Maureen a happy 24th birthday. You have eight, one year since our last broadcast. Yes, Whoa. I have. I am getting so old. Yes. It's insane. And it's been a full-on 24 days of, 24, 24 days to 24. Yeah. yeah. Well, I celebrated a birthday month. I'm fortunate to have a very nearby birthday with my best friend. Um, and so she and I celebrate together, which makes it a lot easier because it feels much less self-centered when nice. we plan a lot of birthday activities. So Unlike people who uh, remind the world that they are turning something for a month. Shut up, you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we've been celebrating since early June. All right, so I have to ask you, my wife saw that you posted something on Facebook about a... a um, uh, uh, kind of like a flight, a wine flight of bacon. Yes. So I went to an establishment here in New York City. If you live in New York or ever in the area, it is called Bar Bacon. Um, and all I knew was that it was a bacon-themed bar. I didn't know, you know, what cool stuff they had. But what they have is basically a bacon tasting. Uh, uh, so I got to taste with beers. So I got to taste four beers and four bacons. Some of them had pairings. Some of them were just general things to taste. Um, and so, yeah, so I had four different kinds of bacon on my birthday evening, and they were delicious. The apple cider bacon was the best. Enjoy staying 24. Enjoy <laughs> yeah, 24. Well, happy official birthday here in the air. Thank you. You know, a good day over 23. Well, good. <laughs> uh, Kenny, you are headed off to Warp Tour at some point. I am. Right? I am. I'm uh, equally excited and frightened. Uh, <laughs> we'll be heading out with our partners at Spencer's who support us uh, throughout the year. It will be two of them. It will be myself and a volunteer for Stupid Cancer at each stop to be determined and uh, we are going to be spreading the good word, trying to get some followers on Instagram and Facebook and recruiting some, some new uh, smiling young faces. Yeah. And it's, perhaps selling some things. Well, you've been wanting to do this for like three years now, so finally it's happening. Yes, it's happening. Yes. And uh, just like everything else, uh, it, it will happen, and I look forward to reporting back. Uh, I'm told, though, a lot of people want free stuff at Warped Tour, so I don't know if it's going to be so much a merch opportunity as it is more of an awareness, and here's a sticker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I can't give too much away. Type of thing. Exactly. So, well, uh, I'm off to uh, Chicago on Wednesday. Um, I'm going to uh, speak. Apparently, it's not a meeting. It's a roundtable think tank for the Association of Community Cancer Centers. Now, for those of you out there that don't know, 80% of anyone diagnosed with cancer is diagnosed and treated at a community cancer center which is the opposite of Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson, Seattle Children's, Mayo Clinic, Dana-Farber, 
80% are treated at community cancer centers. So this is the national organization representing every state's oncology association, which has control over the standards by which each state operates its community cancer center. Mm-hmm. So they want to do a conversation about, let's talk to patients, mm-hmm. <laughs> which one might think, of course you should talk to patients. Mm-hmm. But I've been invited to be the patient. That's exciting. Yeah. That's good. Congratulations. You're representing representing 14 million Americans. So it's like (laughs) a small town type. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How do you trickle down standards of care and practices and oversight and CMS, Medicaid reimbursement, and and, and age-appropriate treatments, pediatrics, young adults, teenagers, you know, married, Mm -hmm. single? How do you trickle down these, what we now consider standards nationally, Mm -hmm. that are working at the cancer center we partner with, to the local mom and pop right. you know, I would clinics also, in nowhere New Mexico. Right, and I would assume that has a lot to do with fertility Yeah, and possibly clinical trials. One of the biggest complaints I see online is people saying that they live in these small towns and don't have access to clinical trials. Right. They're too far away. Right, it's trial, access to trials. It's travel to mm-hmm. the cancer centers. It's the um, uh, Medicaid reimbursements because yep. uh, a lot of them are poor. It's age appropriateness, so fertility and, and psychosocial care and social work, just to having a social worker, yeah. let alone a fertility navigator or nurse navigator. So these are major disparities in cancer care for any age. So right. I'll, I'll be speaking at their event on Thursday. Um, but it's, it's good, and I'll be visiting our, our good friends at uh, Give Forward mm-hmm. ah. on Wednesday afternoon discussing some cancer may be broke strategies. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Another ratio of financial. Mm-hmm. Affecting anyone, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But it's good. I'm looking forward to it, and I, I I look forward to adequately representing. I think it's, I just looked up 16 million Americans who are cancer survivors. Yeah. Wow! All of you, every single one of you, every single one Damn of you. Um, the weight of all of them is on your shoulders. Yeah. And uh, before we bring up Megan, uh, a quick nod to Instapier, which is entering its. Uh, it nods nice. back at you. It's uh, it's 31 hours left. We have about $16,800 left to raise. I know this show is largely listened to on podcasts after the fact and not live, but the website will still be available for anyone listening at any time, instapeer.org. We are launching a mobile app that will do anonymous peer support connections for anyone affected by cancer, including caregivers. It's a really big deal. We're very excited about it, um, and it is going to be a real boy after Labor Day, which is Incredible. Great, great thing. And Kenny awesome. are getting used to our 18 and a half hour time zone difference conversations with our developers in India. Is that really possible? 18 and a half hours? Yeah. yeah. India has half hour time zones. But not, I'm not saying half hour, but 18 and a half? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's an 18 hour flight. Interesting. They are. But India has half hour time the future. Half, uh-huh. half, like the time zones are by half hour. Okay. So that's huh. why it's not 18 hours, 18 and a half hours ahead of us. Well, yeah. And I thought Arizona was confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's got to be terrible, living on one side and working on the other, but half mm-hmm. the time you're late and half the time you're early. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In any case, let's get to our Survivor Spotlight here. I'm really, really excited to have her on the show. Megan Hazelbrandt is an artist, professor, cancer survivor, and new mom. Diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2009 at age 25, Hildebrand created a large-scale drawing series about her treatment and remission experience. She lives in Austin, Texas, where she teaches at the University of Texas. Welcome, Megan. Megan. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi. We are very excited. You, uh, you really piqued my interest when I first learned about your art 
and your story, and I couldn't help, but I wish we could have got you on the show earlier in the season, but we kind of booked up. It's just, just so inspiring, and I'd love you to just start at the beginning because you were diagnosed at 25 uh, six, five years ago, um, and I assume you're happily turning 30 or have already turned 30. But I am uh, already 30. Thanks for reminding okay. me that I just said that in person. <laughs> oh, please, I just turned 40, and I just... We're going to do a, a, a beer chug every time I remind people that I turned 30. I mean, I turned 24. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you talk us through life at 24? What were you up to and how did everything yeah. start? Yeah, I was 24 and just starting uh, my graduate studies at um, in, down in Tampa for a master's degree in art. And um, I just... Uh, had a huge swelling on my neck that increased every time I drank a beer, speaking of beer. And um, I just, it was throbbing. I didn't have insurance. This was before, you know, the Affordable Health Care Act. So I was just one of those people floating around without insurance. So it took me a while to get diagnosed, like a lot of young adults. Um, But when I finally did, it turned out um, after a botched CT scan that was misread, it had progressed to stage 2. So it was 2A, um, and I was treated the entire first year of my graduate program at Moffitt Cancer Center. Um, but I stayed in school, and um, my my kind of thesis project ended up being a big abstract drawing series about being a cancer patient called Counting Radiation. Um, I saw a lot of then, the, yeah. your pieces, and I had it was very something more Pollock esque. So, what was your oh. Yeah, I I was thinking a lot about um, trying to not hit people over the head with this is cancer art, right? Like some of the earlier drawings I did were like me getting my port and, you know, you know what I mean? And like there's like, you know, it was the earlier pieces I did were very figurative, very this is about um, me as a character going through an experience, like in my graphic novel I had made. And then but the one, yeah, counting radiation became more abstract because I was thinking more about how cancer is a very abstract experience, even for the ones going through it. Um, and so, yeah, so I was looking a lot at artists who um, made really specific documentary-type uh, projects about their work, like uh, Hannah Wilkie is one who videotaped her entire, the last, like, 10 years of her life all the time as she was dying from lymphoma. Um, so I was looking at very opposite steps of what I ended up making, which is just a bunch of abstract tally marks. <laughs> um, and you, I'm just looking at your resume, you've had exhibits everywhere. Yes, it turns out if you say that you have had cancer and a survivor and you made art about it that is pretty art, you can exhibit it anywhere. Oh, yeah, people love it. <laughs> it's... um. It's actually my my own cancer hospital, Moffitt, um, funded the whole framing. They did a whole year-long exhibition of it. I mean, it's like second to the best. I mean, the gift they give me of chemo was number one, right? But number two was like, you know, fronting a huge amount of money to frame my entire drawing series and hang it there in front of the, onco- in the oncology research wing, which was like awesome. Um, so Megan, let me ask you. Uh, you were doing this prior to I. I was um, can relate in the sense I was a concert pianist before I was diagnosed. I lost the ability yeah. to play, and a few years later, I started rehabilitating myself. But I started writing music differently. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you go through a similar transition? 
Oh, yeah, huge transition. I was a performance artist before, and I got super self-conscious because I didn't want to do performance art because I didn't want to be bald girl, chemo girl doing performance art, you know? So, I, so I, that's why I started doing more of the drawing and painting because I wanted to go hide, you know? Yes, transformation, definitely. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk about, I mean, you're a, a, congratulations on uh, motherhood, which is a really big deal. Uh, we uh, yeah. we always love success stories in our world. Um, are, were you presented with any fertility threats or options at the time when you were getting treatment? Yes, it was it was it was the one two punch of you have cancer. Call this call this phone number and maybe you you have enough money to get your eggs frozen. You know, it was like one two, um, but I didn't have enough money to get my eggs frozen. So I was you know ABVD what I had for the Hodgkins, um, I guess is still really unknown about a lot of the fertility threats, um, but they were, you know, wanting me to be cautious. I couldn't afford the treatment, so I just kind of crossed my fingers and hoped for the best, and I definitely, we had no trouble conceiving at all. And, in fact, just anecdotally, you know, I've talked to about three or four other Hodgkin's survivors that had had ABVD and even radiation, and they've all been able to have kids. So I think new, more research is needed, but, you know, fertility is a whole other sort of topic, I guess, but related. So I guess everything wound up working out. Oh, yeah. Everything worked out. <laughs> the pregnancy, you know, pregnancy as a cancer survivor is a particularly um, interesting experience. I'm not sure if um, you all know a lot of people who have gone through it, but for myself, the doctors had no idea what to do with this. They were like, okay, we think you're high risk. <laughs> so, I was, so I was treated basically as a high-risk pregnancy and had a lot of scans. Like, like a, I'm talking like sonogram, like the full-on 3D one every month for the entire pregnancy, doing growth checks. Like they were very concerned about like if the baby was going to grow okay from me having chemo. Um, so but it was, they yeah. put you in a high risk category because you had cancer. Because I had because, ke- because I had had chemo. Yeah. Right. Okay. Is that standard? Any of you guys know if that's standard? Any? I'm pretty. It sounds pretty familiar. If your body's been to that kind of trauma, if you've had that kind of toxic. Uh, how many years after you, or how long after chemotherapy did you get pregnant? Uh, three years. Yeah, it's still within the five-year range. They would put you yeah. in a high-risk because I think they'd want to screen more than just the regular, you know, ultrasounds of the baby to make sure there's nothing yeah. going on. But it, in general, getting pregnant naturally is not an increase. doesn't put you at a higher risk for cancer in general. Um, mm-hmm. IVF mm-hmm. kind of... You know, here and there, people have a theory that uh, all these women getting IVF is a reason why more young women are getting, you know, breast cancer and hormone-related cancers. But I think that's still, um, you know, still up for debate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things, I mean, that maybe, like, just as you guys are starting the discussion here about, you know, parenthood and cancer, is I've just been thinking a lot about how um, it's been just the first year of being a new mom and as a survivor, you know, I mean, she's almost one. And I've just kind of experienced a lot. I'm not sure if this happened with you, Matthew, um, but I've experienced a lot of sort of like new thoughts about like my own mortality 
and sort of, I mean, which is probably what every new parent goes through. It's like seeing something, seeing someone born and then sort of re, I, I've had to kind of re-investigate, I think, a lot of my feelings around my own cancer experience. They definitely came back up after the baby was born. Um, and I wonder how common that is. Yeah, I mean, I can only speak on my own behalf, but I, yeah. my wife gave birth in 2010, which was uh, 14 years, right? Is that good? Mm-hmm. 96, 20, 14 years after I was treated. Uh, my reaction wasn't as much about mortality, but it was about what kind of world are we bringing these kids into? <laughs> I've gotten over mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But it was like my, my immediate reaction was like, oh my God, they're here. <laughs> <laughs> what are they eating? What are they breathing? What are they wearing? What are they drinking? What are they smelling? You know, I give them 800 genetic tests yeah, right now. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I was at. It elevated my awareness of toxicities, mm, um, mm-hmm. food and the water and the air and the clothing and even like couch cushions and the blankets we bought them and the detergent we're using. That's kind of where I went immediately with having these two two new things in my life, worrying about what are we exposing them to that we have control over, that we have no control over? And then the things that you do have control over typically have no bearing anyway because you could be exposed somewhere else to something else, and then you could fall off the playground. Right. <laughs> well, I also think a lot about, like, okay, you know, if this was, this was my most intense medical experience, you know, being pregnant and having a baby, and, you know, and then there was cancer before that. And I think a lot about and I, I'm starting to make some work about artwork about the idea of if previously cancer was this, like, negative thing growing inside my body and, you know, juxtaposed next to this experience of something completely positive and healthy and wonderful, like, growing inside your body, it did definitely, I think, sort of made me re-respect my body and sort of believe in it again. Not saying that that's, like, a cure-all for everyone, like, you know, become a can like get over cancer and then go have a baby and you'll be fine mentally. But right. it did sort of help me in that way, you know. So I want I'd love you to talk about the uh, departures in critical qualitative research. That's the <laughs> awkwardest, awesomest, and and coolest name I've ever heard of a journal. I know, I know. So this is this is a journal that has just begun out of California, and it's my, my friend and colleague Megan Voller and I co-authored my first academic article, and it was all about what happens, well, well, we titled it together, What Happens When Your Art Critic Sees You Lose Your Hair, because Megan Voller and I were in Tampa at the same time. She saw me go through all of chemo. We were in classes together. She was in school to be an art historian, slash, you know, she was a, she's an art critic as well. And she has been one of the biggest pushers and supporters of, my, of this whole series of the body of work I made about cancer. And she herself has gotten really interested in this class of art called illness narrative that started in the 80s, you know, around HIV and stuff, and now is expanded to, like, cancer survivors and um, other sorts of end-of-life narrative and illness. But... This this uh, article we wrote together is really about her watching me go through something really intense medically and then watching me make a body of work about it and how does that affect her as, like, can she fairly critic, critique the work I made if she also saw the life experience that it came out of? Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, it does. Um, 
because otherwise the art, the art critics can be sort of the hit and run, you know, dash and run into a gallery out of it. But what happens when the woman who's, you know, reviewing you or writing about and analyzing your work also knows you and knows what you went through to make the work? Um, well, so, I can yeah. imagine that to be a blessing and a curse because, you know, it's yeah. hard enough to get criticized to begin with, with, with hair, with a body, mm-hmm. with intentions, with normalcy. Yeah. You know, then you have to yeah. put yourself on display even more. Yeah. Yeah. So and now yeah. you're an art te- professor at the University of Texas. Do you tell your students about your cancer experience and about how cancer inspired a lot of your work? Actually, that's such a good question. Yeah, I do. I tend to um, sort of disclose, you know, just when – I show them my work because, you know, like, like you, as a professor, you like want maybe like halfway through the semester, you'll show them what you make. Um, and, you know, it's called like counting radiation and then there's like images of me like bald. So I think I kind of do tend to disclose it and say like, you know, I mean, and these are 18, 19 year olds. So this might be the very first time that they're even, you know, learning that young people can get sick. Um, so I do tell them about it just because I tend to teach in a very autobiographically driven way, like, you know, bring your own life experience. And even if, you know, so I tend to sort of couch it in, I want you to make something about your own life, whether it's, you know, we're making a comic project or something. I, I try to sort of not just like throw it out there so they feel bad for me or something, just more like how can we bring this into the work you're making about you? I have to ask you about the piece called Recession. It's oh, the yeah. dumb piece. Sorry, what was so inspiration for that piece? And it's very interesting looking. Um, recession is my gums. Okay, so not sure if you all experience this or if any of the listeners have, but my gums totally receded during chemo. And they said it's because my tissue stopped growing. And so they were like, at the end of chemo, it was like icing on the cake. They're like, your teeth are going to fall out. Like my bottom teeth, they told me my bottom teeth were going to fall out because of the chemo. So I, so I had to get, <laughs> this is so, so horrible. I had to get a dead guy's gums stitched into my gums. What do they call it, a graft? Wait, wait, whoa, whoa. Cadaver gums? Yes, a cadaver gums. That's my new band name. It's, it's, yeah, Cadaver Gums. They're like a punk rock group. Yeah, so this whole thing happened like chemo. And so obviously it was, and also it was like on the tail end of the recession. So there was like double meaning and I was like in grad school and poor. But, you know, I was trying to like track my gums. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so you, you have to make something when something traumatic like that happens. If you're me, I think you have to make like a little gouache or watercolor about it. Uh. I think across 313 broadcasts, that's the first time we've heard cadaver gums. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should ask. About What's been your experience with cadaver gums? That's like my Match.com profile. <laughs> if you are married. I wasn't married. I love my cadaver gums. <laughs> well, we have uh, just a little more time for some questions. Uh, what would you say, we, we always like to ask this question to people, it's kind of generic, but everyone's response is very unique, is what's your message to other young adults facing cancer? You seem like you have an inherent self-vigilant attitude uh, from the start. Um, a lot of people don't have that, and you had art, 
and self-expression yeah. as an anchor to get you through this. What, what would you say to people that may not benefit from having those uh, built into their DNA? Yeah. Well, I, I'm kind of a firm, not a firm believer in art as therapy for everyone. I don't think art's like the key for everyone. But I do think keeping busy with whatever that is for you. Like if you can keep working, I would say keep working. If you're going to go down to your like, you know, the train set you have in the basement of like <laughs> miniature trains. You know what I mean? Like go, like do something that's going to not be sitting on the couch watching TV if you at all can. Because that's the real, that's how you can really feel like that normalcy and you can get your grit back, you know? Um, and, and I realize that's not possible because everyone gets different experiences with treatment. But as much as you can, like, do a lot of crosswords or just keep attached to the part of yourself as much as you can that's not cancer. You know? Well said. Well said. Uh, we, we've been speaking with Megan Hildebrandt, artist, professor at UT Austin, cancer survivor, and new mom. Uh, she is, what did you put in here? She's going to appear in the forthcoming edition of New American Paintings, issue 114 West, due out in early fall. Megan, thank you so much for joining us tonight on the Super Cancer Show. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are awesome, and I listen to you all the time, and you're great. All right. Take care. Hug and Thanks. squeeze that baby. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, Kenny, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Matthew. Yes, sir. Some meetups happening. Oh, yeah? Modesto. Murfreesboro. Just kidding. Murfreesboro. Raleigh, Durham, Anchorage, Denver, and... Oh, look at this. A special meetup with Matthew Zachary in Chicago. I'm 40 years old. And he's 40 years old. So he's uninvited. He's uninvited to the meeting. Everybody do a shot. Just kidding. All right, Matt. Cancer is lonely, period. And we've got the cure. It's called Instapeer, our forthcoming free mobile app that will bring instant anonymous peer support to anyone affected by cancer. Visit instapeer.org and watch our video, learn more about this project, and consider making an online tax-deductible donation so you can be a part of history. Instapeer.org. All right, it's always a good time to stock up on your stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got a skateboard, and don't forget about Flip, no pun intended with the skateboard, the Cancer Bird, our latest plushy mascot. That is stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud and wear stupid cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, we've got a great show tonight. It's a great segue from Megan's piece about parenting with cancer. We've got a nice array of people representing all aspects of what that means. And, uh, Annie, would you like to do the honors? Sure. We have Jen Singer. She created ParentingWithCancer.com as a resource. She was she had when she was diagnosed in 2007 with stage 3 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She is now six years in remission and the mom of two teenage boys. And joining her is Adam Johnson. He's a 17-year non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor and current carcinoid syndrome patient. He's been working on political pains, political campaigns since Governor Bill Owens' re-election campaign in 2002. He's married with two boys, Owen, seven, and Alex, three. 
and rounding out is Francesca Geisman. She's a young adult survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a certified holistic health coach, and a founding member of the Team Stupid Cancer Marathon team and founder of The Nourishing Seed, whose mission is to educate and support clients to take an active role in their health. Welcome, Francesca, Jen, and Adam. Hey, guys. Hey there. Hi, guys. Hi. Like I said, uh, tonight's show is really important. It's one of the few shows we post on Facebook that gets a thousand comments because it's mm. such an emotional touch point and it's such an emblematic uh, issue for the young adult cancer world. Uh, clearly, this is not an issue if you're six or 60, unless you're Tony Randall, who had a kid at 75 years old. But at the end of the day, this is something that's very meaningful, very powerful, and I'm excited to have the three of you on. And because men get the short end of the stick here, stupid cancer being 75% female, I'd like to start with Adam. Sure. Because as a dad, and you were a rock star at the uh, Colorado boot camp, according to Allie Ward. Is that correct? <laughs> I, I don't know if that's entirely true, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> so you are long-term pediatric survivor out, married with, uh, with uh, two beautiful children now, um, the issues, one of the issues about parenting with cancer is having them after treatment or dealing with them if you have them while you're sick. And having gone through what I'm sure you're going to tell us about is, is very aggressive, highly toxic pediatric treatments, the question of fertility and long-term follow-up and side effects and whatnot, I'd love you to talk about your story. Yeah, well, you know, in, in 1997, I was uh, diagnosed with stage one non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I actually just uh, coincidentally found a lump. Um, we vacation uh, in Montana every summer, and there I, I found it, came back, and uh, September 5th, they uh, did a biopsy and uh, found that it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, localized. Um, but, I, you know, I had the unique situation of either going to an adult oncologist or a pediatric oncologist being 17 years old, and the adult uh, oncologist had wanted to do six months to a year of chemo and a stem cell or a bone marrow transplant. The um, the pediatric oncologist had a clinical trial to do five rounds of CHOP chemo and then do follow-up, and, and that would be the only treatment I had. So I um, obviously opted for the less amount of treatment, but it was also, you know, five, five days inpatient um, chemo at the Children's Hospital here in Denver, um, I did get very sick, lost all my hair, and um, was told that I would not ever have children. Um, but then, miraculously, you know, it was nine years later, my, my wife and I had uh, gotten pregnant with our, our first son, Owen. And did everyone do a collective gasp as to how that was possible? Um, kind of. I still joke with my wife that I, I, I threatened to do a paternity test to make sure that he's mine, but... Um, she, doesn't find it very, she doesn't find it very humorous. <laughs> so when, when you met uh, your wife, when you met her and started dating, was she, how, how long did you wait to tell her that you had gone through this experience and that it might impact her ability to be a mom? Uh, you know, it, I waited about four months until it had gotten relatively serious. Um, I'm a pretty guarded person to begin with and didn't feel like it. I needed to share that information unless it was... I'm going to go down that road. And so we had a lot of discussions about the possibility of not having children. And there was always, you know, the idea of adopting children. And so being a father was never out of the question or being a mother for her was never out of the question. 
Um, but it was always questionable whether we would have our own children. Well, now you have two, and I'm sure you're paying the price in terms of uh, all the wonderful things that come along with raising children. Uh, I am. You know, two boys is a um, is a challenging experience. I, I grew up with two two brothers and didn't realize how miserable we made life for my mother until, <laughs> until I, I had two boys. But it, it is um, it is the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. I, I, I really believe that every day. No, and having known Jenna Francesca and, and many other people who've gone on to have the blessing of children after cancer or whatnot, um, it, it, all the diapers and the diarrhea smears on the walls <laughs> and all the broken bones and whatnot, it, it, you'd rather have that than nothing. Yeah. But one thing I've learned that my friends have imparted to me was that there's a Tumblr we must all follow called Shit My Kids Broke, and we can update the stuff. on the. T- it's an open Tumblr. You can post stuff. So if your kids break things, you post it on Tumblr, and everyone else can share in your misery. Huh. <laughs> I got a lot of TVs that could go on the Tumblr. <laughs> oh, wow. That's an expensive one. Yeah, so, all right, so let's, let's hop over to Jen here because uh, Jen started a website called Parenting with Cancer, and it's a great resource, and I've known about it for quite a while now. Uh, Jen, welcome to the show. I think this is your first appearance. Is that correct? That is correct. Well, I'm sorry it took so long. I think I owe a beer. <laughs> okay, I'll come in the city. You buy me a beer. Perfect. Yeah, because you're in, like, Jersey. You're not that far yeah. away, but you're, like, you're like Jersey far away, not like Hoboken, like, Jersey. That's right, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of like on the other side where the mountains and the bears and whatnot are, but I, I can get there for a beer. I'll come bears. in. Yeah, lots of bears. I'm, I'm never going back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you had a different situation than Adam in that you, um, you, know, it, it's, uh, you built a resource that you wished you had and, and your children um, – have played a major role through all of this and want to get started in the beginning. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. So when I was, I was actually 40, I was diagnosed with stage 3 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, aggressive B-cell. I was about two months from death and was rushed into the hospital. So the kids didn't have that. The kids were 10 and 8 at the time. I have two teenage boys now. And they didn't have that, um, you know, mommy's going to go to the hospital. They went to school and I went to see a doctor who, after being given the runaround by many doctors, said, that's a tumor, go to the hospital right now. It was 15 centimeters in my left lung. And so they came home from school, and Grandma was here, and it was, you know, their lives were completely turned upside down from that moment on. So they are now 17 and 15, and I am six years in remission. And I asked them both today, you know, what I did right and what I did wrong. Um, in terms of, of parenting with cancer. And, and, you know, the good thing was they said keeping them busy was great, um, you know, having a lot of people to hang out with, but it would be better to be hanging out with their own friends than with just, you know, anyone in the neighborhood who wanted to help out because what they felt was the people who didn't know them were kind of pitied them, whereas the friends were just their friends. So that was kind of difficult. They also said that they were very frightened to see me in the hospital. And if I had to do it over again, I might not have them come in, even though it would be a few days before I got home and could tell them what was going on. I think knowing, knowing, knowing that now, I probably wouldn't have them come in. And then, of course, spoiling them is, is absolutely necessary. <laughs> you 
get the, you know, just, just, just keep them busy, give them ice cream, whatever they want while you're going through treatments. And uh, Francesca, I think this is like your 47th appearance on the radio show, but what well-deserved. Um, we always love you. Ha- ha- love uh, your accent uh, on, our, on the air. Um, but you have also dealt with this uh, parenting with cancer and um, met your husband, met your family. It's an amazing story. And so let's have you tell your story, and then we'll open up some questions to the group. So I had a very similar situation to Jen, uh, just that my son was three years old in 2007 uh, when I was diagnosed with stage 4 non-Hodgkinson lymphoma. And uh, much like Jen, I got sick one night, and um, I went to the ER, and I never left for 14 days when I came home with my shaved head. And um, Leo was only three, so he couldn't come to the hospital. So that kind of was a blessing that they made that decision for me, that he couldn't come. But um, his little life when he was three years old got really shaken because, you know, I was this really you know, vibrant and busy mom, and, you know, I had this long black hair, and out of a sudden for him, you know, I had really changed um, quickly. Um, so him and my husband actually shaved their heads too when we got home, so we were all this family with the eggheads. Um, but it was, you know, it was different than um, having um, a teenager or even, you know, Leo is 10 now, almost 10, and um, it would have been different now. So I think there was... Um, you know, things that would have been easier if he was a little bit older and things that definitely made it easier because he was so um, little and although we didn't hide anything, you know, mom had a boo-boo, but certainly he couldn't understand the magnitude of, you know, how, you know, shitty the situation was. Um, But he did, um, a few years later, um, came with questions when he was six years old. Uh, He asked if when I was bald uh, and I was in the hospital a lot if I had cancer and my visceral reaction at the time was to lie at first because we had finally kind of crossed that bridge that cancer was somewhat in the, you know, behind us. But I came clean and I said, yes, I did have cancer. And um, that created um, some pretty deep emotional times because he thought everybody had cancer and everybody was going to die and he had cancer. So we revisited a, a therapist to just help us to you know, just assure him that everything was okay, that he didn't have it, that my dad, that his dad didn't have it. So um, different nuances having them so young. But now he's 10 and he talks about prevention and um, what people should do and um, just he's very, you know, he wears the stupid cancer T-shirt all the time. <laughs> and we so love that. Story. <laughs> very yeah. cool. Uh, one of the questions I have is, how you tell your children and what's the best way to do it. Do you sit there? I know that um, uh, Francesca, you just mentioned about being in the hospital and how you felt that was a mistake. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, but how was the best way to tell children? Is it you sit them down in the living room or at the dinner table, you tell them casually, you wait a little while. How did you, each of you go about the whole process of explaining to children the disease and how serious it can be and also your experience? So, um, so for me, you know, Leo was only three. He had just turned three. It was a few weeks after he turned three. So that was limiting what he understood. I was very close to my pediatrician at the time, so I called her for advice. I said, um, you know, this is, I'm at the hospital. I'm diagnosed. What do you recommend? 
and she gave me some great pointers at the time of, you know, that his life, we should try to keep his life as normal or as, you know, uh, his routine as normal as possible. But that, you know, that was on the shoulders of my husband who was home with him for the two weeks while I had my first, you know, art shop and everything. You know, I never went home until all that had happened. Um, for us, Leo thought I had a boo-boo where my port was because he needed to be careful coming, you know, on my lap or, you know, I had a very sensitive area where my port was and I always had a Band-Aid, so he thought my boo-boo was my port. So we just sat with him and said that mom was going to take some medicine and I was going to be, I was going to get better, but I just, he needed to be careful with, you know, jumping on top of me or that maybe I wasn't going to be able to go to the park so often. Um, so for him, it was the language that he understood, but I'm sure for, you know, Jen, having older kids was very different. Yeah, um, you know, my boys were 10 and 8. I didn't want them to hear about it at the school bus stop. I wanted us to be the first ones to use the word cancer because you know somebody's going to say to them, oh, I'm so sorry for your mommy has cancer, and you have to frame it however you can when you first see them. And I actually, I didn't use the word cancer because I knew I was going to burst into tears, so I showed them the x-ray, and I said there was this big blob and that I needed medicine that was going to make it shrink and that would make my hair fall out. Wouldn't that be funny? Um, it's going to be, you know, I'm going to be sick for a little while. I'm going to be in and out of the hospital. And then when my husband took them home, I said, you have to use the word cancer tonight. And then he reiterated the story and then mentioned the word cancer so that that was the first time they heard it. And Adam? Well, you know, it, obviously the first time I didn't have children, and, and this time um, my oldest was three when I was diagnosed, and so we, we didn't talk about it much. He's Now that he's gotten older, he'll go um, to treatments with me. He knows that I have cancer. We, we've sat down, um, just him and I, uh, at, the, at, the, at the dinner table, and uh, my three-year-old certainly can't understand what's going on he knows dad's sick and I go to the hospital and I get medicine to make me better um, and that's kind of both <clears throat> both of their understanding I mean they're they're young enough that I think it's really hard to to understand how serious it is or um, how awful it makes you feel at times and um, so, so I, I've, I've talked with my my seven-year-old about it my three-year-old just I don't think he cares <laughs> to pay attention long <laughs> enough to, to listen to it so this opens up a bigger conversation. I mean, we talk about 72,000 young adults diagnosed every year. We don't actually know what percentage are um, that have children or want to have children or will eventually have children if they're treated. Um, but there it really doesn't seem to be any kind of standard of care in this country. When, And I would love you to maybe talk about this. Was there a social worker or some kind of child life specialist or anyone throughout your course of care from the uh, the lifestyle side of things who gave you guidance, referred you to books on what to do in these situations, or did you have to go to Dr. Google? I mean, Jenna, I know you started your own website, Parenting with Cancer, because nothing existed online. But what 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 helped you understand this, or was it just instinctive parenting because you had nothing else? Let's start with Adam. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's just instinctive parenting. I, you know, it had been, um, God, well, 10 years from my original diagnosis to um, when I had my oldest Owen. And, and you know, at, at 10 years, the thought of 
you know, you're a cancer survivor is there every day, but it's, you know, diminishes every day and you get less worried. I, I always felt about it as every day went on. And so, you know, I, I think like most parents, you, you dealt, you learned as it came. And, you know, certainly we read as many books as we could just about being new parents, but nothing particular about um, having had cancer and, and being a parent specifically. And Jen, you talk a lot about how um, difficult it is for parents to ask for help, especially when it comes to helping take care of your kids. Can't exactly, or you don't want to bring your kids to treatments or doctor's appointments or anything like that. So what do you suggest for parents who have young children who are going through treatment and a lot of people are reluctant to ask for help? So what would you tell those people? You know, I was really fortunate in that my entire neighborhood um, and my family, both sides, came to help out, and I was not hesitant to take the help because I was so sick. Um, I had one friend organize people to um, to take the kids to swim team practice because it was summertime and to take them for play dates, and I had another one organized to have people cook for us because at the same time we were having housewide construction that we had already started, so we needed total chaos. We had no kitchen, so this was a great time to have everyone cooking for us. Um, I would just say that, you know, ask for help and be very specific about it. You know, when someone says, oh, if you need any help, say yes, I need you to take my son to swim team. I need you to go to soccer practice. I need you to stop at the store and buy us milk. Be very specific and ask for the help because then that reserves your energy for your kids instead of chores. Right, and, and kids are still a moving target, too. I mean, Francesca, your, your child was young and now he's getting older. They're going to ask questions, and, and dare I even remind you that we have a social footprint, so one day when they join whatever Facebook is in 10 years, they're going to find out that mommy and daddy were sick, and they're going to start asking more questions. So this is kind of a, a never... This is kind of a, I'm sorry. It's some internal chatter here. Uh, this is kind of a never-ending rabbit hole with being a mom and a dad, correct? Sure, and, you know, for us, I was not given the option to, I think they thought, okay, she has a son already, she's not, you know, I was, my disease was very aggressive, I was never told about fertility. Three weeks into chemo, I told my oncologist, you know, my periods stop, and I don't think I'm pregnant, believe me, and she said, oh, I think you went into menopause, like so nonchalant. And um, I was like, oh, really? I mean, and I remember thinking, you know, having this mixed, you know, very grateful that I had a child, but... I, you know, in the movie of my life, I was going to have at least two children, but that movie, whatever, you know, it's another story. But I have had the conversation. See, Leo now, he's very inquisitive. So now he will not, whatever he will find out on Facebook, he'll be able to add to the conversation because he's, he knows exactly what happened and, you know, we talk about it. But he also knows now that he, he didn't have a sibling because also I had a lot of complications after chemo. So my two years post-chemo, I was also always in and out of the hospital. So even though we had originally thought of as soon as chemo finished for us to adopt, but I was in no health to be a mom of a child, even if it wasn't my biological child, you know, I just, or a new child. And um, so Leo knows that he's also, he's an only child. He's, it's great, but it was also cancer. It was the gift that never ended, you know, the gift that keep on giving uh, that, um there's no siblings for him. Understood. So. Uh, Adam, you, you work in um, in government. Is that still correct? Uh, yes. Uh, political campaigns in government. That's, that's right. Right. 
Are you involved at all in policy? Because I would be curious to know if uh, there were any states' rights unique to Colorado about uh, financial reimbursement or insurance coverage for child care if you're sick. Um, I know FMLA kind of has a universal application, but every state uh, uses them differently. Did any of you have to go through FMLA or need child care in the process and, and were struggling for those resources as a parent? I have I, I did not, and you know the the, the issue that we have here in, in Colorado, and I think it's nationwide in general, is that FMLA covers employers of 50 or more employees. So if you work for someone who's got 49 employees, they can deny your FMLA request, um, which is a pretty crappy thing for an employer to do. But they certainly do that, and it's um, it's difficult to get around. Here in Colorado, you know, we just recently passed the the right to try uh, bill, which will allow terminal patients to try drugs not yet approved by the FDA uh, on a fast track when they have no other options, which I think is is great. But from a support standpoint, you know, as progressive as we are as as a social state, we don't we don't have a lot in Colorado. And I have a question for well, actually, all- you, Jen and uh, oh, Francesco sure. wanted to give them a quick response there. I'm self-employed, so there was not none of that, and I was in the middle of a book deal, and so I was writing my book in on the oncology floor at New York Hospital, and I would sometimes get out a couple pages, and sometimes I'd fall asleep. I was also writing a blog for Good Housekeeping at the time that was supposed to be about parenting tweens, and I was diagnosed five weeks into that blog, and so they let me write about cancer once a week, so because I couldn't pretend that that wasn't happening. Um, and I was also self-employed, and um, I had a contract with a new consulting client who was supposed to keep going. But I just and I wanted to keep, you know, working on the project. But just I got very sick very quickly. So, no, nothing on my end. I want to ask you each of you a little about if you did uh, couples counseling with your spouses or counseling with your children or sent your kids to counseling on their own or you went yourself or just how to deal with everything. Um, you know, cancer doesn't, doesn't just affect you, it affects the whole family. So I'm just interested in how all of you dealt with that from the, you know, psychotherapy aspect. Yeah, I, uh, my kids wound up in therapy. They were in, um, it would have been third and fourth grade that fall. Um, and I have also been in therapy. I've, I have found great uh, relief through a therapy called Focusing, which you can find out about at focusing.org. In fact, I just became a uh, trainer, went through two years to become a trainer to do it, and it's a sort of a mind-body approach. Um, your, your, your body has answers and remembers things that your head doesn't, and when you, it gets, feels heard, you move forward so much faster. Um, and um, for me, um, my husband and I, we held it really together doing treatment. Everybody was on survival mode. You know, my mom came from Brazil, and she was helping out on the everyday, and my husband went to work so he could make money to pay the bills, and I got there sick. But um, about six months to nine months uh, after treatment, uh, we really, you know, almost called it quits, which was a super sad time. Uh, it was a very stressful time, so him and I both went to therapy together. He went alone also for some time, which I thought was great. And um, we both used from 
from you know therapy sessions. Leo has never gone himself alone, and it's something I have wanted, but I had never found the right setting. We moved to California when I thought he was about the time that he could start. Um, so um, I highly encourage anyone listening, especially if you are a young couple with young children, then you know to if you have access to therapy, to em- embrace it. You're not weird to go to therapy. You're not crazy if you go to therapy. You therapy is there because it's it's awesome and can really help. And my husband and I are. You know, still together 12 years later, and it's. I'm very glad we went to therapy. Yeah, and, and my wife and I uh, go together. My children have not, um, being as young as, as they are now. I, I, I anticipate at some point that um, they, will, they will need to. Um, but uh, my, my wife and I do go uh, currently about once a month, and um, we'll continue to do that as long as it's um, beneficial. I was going to ask if the three of you were aware of a camp. It's called Camp Kesem. Uh They mm-hmm. offer free camps for children whose parents are sick or who have been sick, and I believe they've organized a few thousand people over the past couple of years who are now some of them have become counselors of the camp. But it, it's from what I'm to understand, it's one of the few experiences out there where you, it's a safe place for children to meet other children who may be confused regardless of how well their parents are articulating the experience. Did any of you avail yourselves of resources like that for your kids specifically? I've heard of them because I've written about them on parentingwithcancer.com. My kids kind of felt like when I went into remission and I found out about it the following January that they just wanted it behind them. So they didn't want to be part of that community anymore, and and I, I don't... I don't blame them. So for us, when I went to remission, that part of what they want, you know, that was over for them. Yeah, no, I, I, I have not. Yeah, no, I have not. And um, I think that's a, I'll look into it. I think that's a very interesting thing. I think I actually know people that have sent their kids and have all the comments I've heard that they were awesome. Again, Leo was at the time when I was sick, he was too young too. I think they are. They started either seven or eight years old, um, and then I, like Jen, I think four years later when he would have had the age, um, I think we were all ready to put it behind us, you know, so not to, um, you know, just to not not bury it, not hide it, but just not leave in it for for a whole week if not if not needed be, you know. Sure. On that same topic of resources like Camp Kesem, I know, Jen, you mentioned that you have your website, Parenting with Cancer. What other resources, you can tell us a little bit about your website as well, and what other resources have you found that have been helpful um, as a parent? The the reason I started ParentingWithCancer.com in 2011 was that in 2007 when I was diagnosed, I Googled Parenting with Cancer, and I got people whose parents whose kids had cancer which is not what I was looking for. Um, mm-hmm. Wendy Harpham had a wonderful book that's still a, a classic mm-hmm. on you know, when a parent has cancer. I highly recommend that. Um, yeah. But I, I felt like that there were discussions that weren't being had because you know, you're, you're afraid to talk about you can't be the parent you normally are when you have cancer. And it's, it's almost embarrassing to say that. I'm not, I can't be the parent I normally am. So I think that that um, the reason I started is just to start that conversation and and let everybody know that y- y- you're not alone. We uh, and I I, have, I think sorry, go ahead. 
Matt, it I, does Instapier will have a little, you know, box on their profile, like, do you have kids and how old are your kids? Because I think, you know, connecting with other parents, and I think, Jen, maybe you and I, in you know, 2007, we were both sick at the same time. We probably mm-hmm. spoke on some forum or something because there yeah. were so few resources, you know, Six years ago, even Facebook was like there were three people on Facebook. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so um, now you can connect easier. But um, I think finding, you know, people would give me books, you know, when your grandma has kind of, Nana has a boo-boo. And I'm like, well, it's not his grandmother. It's his mom. You know, it's different. So, um, so I think connecting with people that are going through similar or have gone through similar situations is definitely the best thing to do. You know, to the three of you, we had a guest on the show a few weeks ago named Mark Silver. Um, his daughter was, I think she was 16 or 15 when he was diagnosed with cancer in his late 30s, early 40s. And they wrote a book called My Parents Has Cancer and It Really Sucks. And it's a great book, and it's largely targeted for teenagers. Uh, but we're talking about little children who are, have a different means of communication, and you don't need six-year-olds finding peer support with other six-year-olds without a baby, a playroom, a playroom or Camp Kesem. But to answer your question, Francesca, yes, Instapeer, our mobile app coming out this fall, mm-hmm. uh, specifically does have a uh, drop-down in your profile to tell the app whether you are a parent or not and what age your children are. So Fabulous. it will match by parents uh, based on the age of their children. And it, similar to this book, if you are a teenager whose parents are sick, you can use the app as a teenager, as a caregiver, and let it know that you are a teen and your parents are sick. So trying to bridge the gap. But that ties me into the segue for our last question for the three of you about caregivers. And we all have spouses, and marriages are always a, uh, you know, a work in progress, and we love our, our significant others. But throwing cancer in the ring and then throwing children on top of cancer in the ring can be extremely stressful. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share your experience um, uh, being uh, happily betrothed when all this uh, shit hit the fan and what strategies and tactics and resources worked for you to keep going? Um, I, if I can go because I've, you know, I've, I've been there, um, I think it's about taking one day at a time and um, knowing that things are going to kind of get better, uh, search for therapy if you can, and... Um, you know, just just kind of work through it, you know, one day at a time. It is super hard. I find that there are very little resources for caregivers that are not parents, meaning like, you know, the parent of a young adult. But, you know, my husband, everything was focused either on my son because he was so young or on me because I was like throwing up and kind of losing my pulse. But there was very little resources for Carson. And, um, you know, he had his butt that he would go have a beer, but he was also so stressed. So uh, I think um, having an Instapier that could connect, you know, a spouse of a, of a woman with cancer that has kids the same age, so finding that I like people will really be incredible because there's nothing really out there for that. And, Jen, final thoughts? I think we lost Adam. If he calls back, we'll bring him back in. Well, I'm divorced, so I'm not sure you want to ask me that question, but I can tell you that caregivers do get the short end of the stick because they're not only supposed to be taking care of the entire family, they're, they're also not supposed to fall apart, and they have feelings too. And uh, people need to, to you know, every check-in on the caregiver because it's, it's really hard on them. Yes. Well, 
Well said. Well said. I mean, again, we could have a show every week about this topic, and it's a never-ending sinkhole of, of discussion. And uh, it's different for everybody. It's different for every child, and it's different for every couple. So um, then we, we could get in the discussion of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of mixed marriages and, and um, uh, disparity, mar- disparity groups and cultural diversity in this issue. We, again, there's so many different levels, but I wanted to thank the three of you for your willingness to be so open and honest on the show tonight and sharing that with you. So thank you for joining us. I look forward to seeing you guys at some point soon. So uh, Francesca Geisman, Adam Johnson, and Jen Singer. Thanks, guys. Enjoy yourself, and God bless. Thank you. Thank Coming you. in for my beer. Thank you. <laughs> yes, and you Bye. That's a guarantee. And a Jay-Z. <laughs> All right. Well, another good show. Another good show. Uh, any final thoughts? Wisdom from the crowd? Um, one thing that um, I deal with is uh, I don't have children myself, but I do have nieces and nephews who are in that age range. And one thing I noticed that is that um, my nieces who are old enough to comprehend my oldest niece, like read The Fault in Our Stars, saw it opening night, um, you know, do fundraisers. Kids want to help. Um, my little niece cut her hair and I saw that. Yeah. yeah, she donated it. So that was her way of helping as like, a seven-year-old. Right. And, um, you know, she was very proud of herself. And obviously I was very proud of her because she surprised me and I was barely able to, like, compose myself And uh, when she showed me her hair. And, um, you know, my other niece made T-shirts. There's very positive ways for children to deal with this um, besides it just having to be sad and seeing you bald and things like that. But one other thing I've talked about with... Um, psychologist I see is uh, sometimes when they say things, they're very blunt. Right. And the big thing is that children, he said, reminded me that they don't have filters. And they don't understand <laughs> yeah. that they're supposed to have filters. Mm-hmm. One of my nieces like sent me, wrote me a letter that said, like, I don't know what I'd ever be able to do without you. And when you're dealing with metastatic cancer and she's eight years old, uh, now she's 10. Yeah, right. now she's 10. It is a little devastating to read that because you're like, what have I done to these children? Mm-hmm. Am I going to, you know, break their hearts? Am I going to, you know, beat the eye? You just, you know, you never know when you're in a military man. You're just like, live scan the scan. Yeah. But um, that was the one thing that I found helpful because I was struggling with their feelings. But part of it is that they don't, kids just don't have, they just don't know, you know, how to hold back. Right. Like my no filters. They have no filters. Like my parents definitely have filters and other friends and whatever. They don't say certain things. But a kid might be like, you look fat <laughs> when you're on like a bazillion steroids. Like right. what happened to you? And mm-hmm. my niece is like laughed at me because I was, I don't know, very bond sized when I saw <laughs> them. But, you know, it's it's important to keep that in mind. And also give, if the kids want to help, let them, you know, everyone knows Alex's lemonade stand. Let them do Things like right. that, that they'll find rewarding. Exactly. Well, uh, again, a really good show. Thanks, Andy, for that. A, a quick reminder before we wrap, tomorrow night on ABC Family, Tuesdays at 9, 8 Central, the third episode of Chasing Life. We don't try to timestamp these episodes, but if you do listen to it today or tomorrow, be sure Tuesday night to check out episode three of ABC Family's Chasing Life. And with that, now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. 
You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you got it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 312th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. We'd like to thank our guests tonight, Megan Hildebrand, Francesca Geisman, Jen Singer, and Adam Johnson. On next week's show, stupid kidney cancer. Renal cell carcinoma is a very rare cancer that represents the most common form of kidney cancer and is occurring more frequently in young adults. Join us to welcome young adult renal cancer survivors, Warren Hassel and Dr. Carl Bischoff, board-certified urologic, urologic oncologist and renal cell carcinoma specialist to shed light in this under-discussed orphan disease. Survivor Spotlight on Stephen Robinson. Subscribe to the Stupid Cancer Show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio, or check us out online anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Mallory Rivera, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, thanks for listening. We'll see you back here live next Monday at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Good night.